Hey guys, so I totally forgot that with the podcast app that I use, it cuts off after one hour. So uh, you guys missed the last 20 minutes of class because I didn't realize that the podcast had stopped recording. So I'm super sorry, but this is going to be an incentive for you to come to class because the last 20 minutes are now going to be the cliff notes of what we talked about uh, because I'm kind of tired. But I do want to clue anyone in that was listening on what we discussed for the last few minutes of class. Um, Now we were talking about when we left off what the Passover night was like for them. And I think it's interesting to just think about the fact that the Israelites had been protected from plagues four through nine. So do you think they were a little surprised that they now had to participate this time in plague number 10? I just wonder if any of them thought, oh, well, I I just thought maybe God would protect us. It had been a little while since they had had to participate in any of the plagues. But the thing about that is that the Israelites deserved to die just as much as the Egyptians. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So once again, we see another parallel. Now we noted in the homework on page 81 that chapter 12 up through 1316 is a chiasm which is a literary technique often used in scripture for a, um, when there's a climactic moment um, that is set in the middle of it. We saw this in the book of Esther. And the parallels on either side, or not the parallels, but the, the topics on either side and the literary form on either side of this chiasm parallel each other up to the climax. So the climax in this case is the occurrence of the 10th plague and then the subsequent exodus of the people after Pharaoh orders them to go. So I wanted to read together the climax of the story since this is what we have been waiting for, what the Israelites have been waiting for, and it's the turning point in our story. So I'm going to read from Exodus 12, 29, and it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn... Um, sorry, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And then Pharaoh adds this little part and bless me also. And we laughed at that. And it's just interesting that Pharaoh is asking for Moses' blessing. But you see, there is no blessing for those who do not trust in the blood of the lamb. The blessing is reserved for those who are in the house with the blood of the lamb on the lintel, who have believed God's word and have come under the blood of the lamb for the atonement of their sins. The blessing is reserved for those who are in Christ. Going on to verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead So the people took their dough before it was leavened, 
their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Now, I don't want us to miss that it says a mixed multitude. What does that mean? It means it wasn't just the Israelites. They were Egyptians going too. So we get this picture of Jew and Gentile alike being redeemed together as they're leaving Israel. Do you see that? A mixed multitude leaving to serve the Lord, Jew and Gentile alike. It's a beautiful picture, again, of foreshadowing the gospel. And so this mixed multitude goes up, and, and it says that all their livestock goes as well, both their flocks and their herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. They had their gold and their jewelry and their clothing, but not any provisions to eat. Then the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt, says verse 40, was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord, says verse 42 a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now I want to clue in on this night of watching by the Lord and this same night, as verse 42 says. What was that same night so many years later? It was the night that Jesus was eating the Passover meal for the last time with his disciples, having communion with them for the first time, raising the cup and saying, this is my blood poured out for you. And then not going to bed, but going to the garden, to the garden of Gethsemane and praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me and then being arrested, and then taken before the Sanhedrin and the Jewish council. It all happened that night. Do you think that was also a night of watching by the Lord? I absolutely think so. That same night, so many years later, was the night that Jesus shed blood in the garden through drops of sweat as he waited to be crucified for us. It's in one of the gospels that says that he was on the cross by 9 a.m. the next morning. That was a night of watching by the Lord. There is no doubt about that. Now, what we see here in their leaving, what is being stressed in the text so much is this unleavened bread. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. So they had to eat unleavened bread. Thus we have the feast of unleavened bread 
that comes right with the Passover. We have the Passover, and then we immediately go into this Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasted seven days. What does leaven speak of in other passages of Scripture? It speaks of sin. So what spiritual significance could there be that the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes on the heels of the Passover? I think it speaks of sanctification. We have redemption by the blood of the Lamb, and then we have a going out without any leaven. Unleavened, without sin. This reminds me a lot of 1 Peter 1, 14 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Then verse 18, look how this all comes together. Peter says to us, be holy, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the lamb, be holy. Live for him. Serve the Lord. Romans 6.18 says that we have been set free from sin so that we can be slaves or bondservants of righteousness. We are saved to serve. Over and over in the last few chapters of Exodus, as you go through the plagues, what reason did we see Moses give to Pharaoh for letting the people go? Over and over it says, let my people go so they may serve me. Let my people go so they may serve me. The word serve can also be translated worship. We are saved to serve. So your second principle of the night is we are liberated or saved to serve. We are liberated to serve. Here's the purpose of our freedom in Christ to live a sanctified life in service to God. Thus, we are not liberated empty-handed. We can go back to that. God gives his servants the tools and help they need to live righteously in his service to him. So the picture we get then of Passover and the subsequent Feast of Unleavened Bread is not just one of salvation, but one of sanctification. Jesus says, I have set you free from the grip of this world so you can come out and you can be holy. Or as Paul said to the Corinthian church, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Not just a renewed lump, but a new lump as you really are unleavened. You really are without sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So this idea of being a new lump could also lead us to passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Hence being born again, as Jesus explained, 
to Nicodemus in John 3. So with that in mind, and this is kind of weird, but I'm starting to come around to it, some scholars look at Israel's story, this story, as a birth story, which the more I study it, I think the more I can see it, the plagues are the birth pains then, or the contractions, which intensify as they proceed until Pharaoh commands them to get out. You can almost envision a woman in labor just wanting that baby out. Then these scholars liken the parting of the Red Sea to the birth canal and a people being born again as the nation of Israel. It might seem a little far-fetched, and I'm with you if it does, but I do think that there could be a picture there of our spiritual rebirth. Now there's one more way the Israelites were to memorialize this occasion, and that is through the redemption of the firstborn. If you look at Exodus 13, 1, which you would have looked at in your homework, um, but I will read it for you here. Exodus 13, 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Consecrate to me the firstborn. In Numbers 18, 14 through 16, we learn that the price of redemption for the firstborn son was five shekels of silver. So this law reminded Israelite parents that their children belonged to God. But more than that, we see a picture of redemption. Redemption means to buy back through the payment of a price. And of course, it points then to our ultimate redemption in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's the purpose of all this. Their liberation was not just a rescue. It was a redemption. God bought them. Jesus Christ's blood has paid our price. He has redeemed us. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, glorify God in this body. Your last principle, we are not just rescued, we are redeemed. We aren't just rescued, we are redeemed. I love Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. We belong to him. Redemption of the firstborn. Remember that God called Israel his firstborn son. He redeemed them. And we have been redeemed in Christ, and therefore we belong to him. So we see tonight then, how are we saved? How are we liberated? By the blood of the lamb. And for what purpose? We are liberated to serve him. We are liberated to serve him. I hope that makes sense to you guys. I hope those of you that weren't here, um, that if you do have any questions on this, that you will reach out to me. 
and um, come and talk to me about it. Um, but I hope that it, it made sense to you guys listening to it. And I hope to see you next week. Thank you. And that's it.